Greetings once again, friends, and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker. This week, we're reading through sermons 563 to 569. That's 563 to 569. The Barley Field on Fire is the first of those, and the last of them is our featured sermon for this week, The Arrows of the Lord's Deliverance. Now, if you want to follow along, you can do so on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon, or you can find us at www.mediagratii.org slash podcasts, where you can click a link and you can sign up to a weekly newsletter where we'll tell you what the week's reading is and include a PDF of the relevant sermon. Now, the reason why we're studying Spurgeon is because he's a man who's gifted by God for the proclamation of the Lord Christ with the help of the Holy Spirit. And his his ministry continues to echo down to us with uh, real value. And for me, at least, that's very true with regard to this particular sermon, The Arrows of the Lord's Deliverance. Now, it wasn't preached at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, but was rather delivered on a Tuesday evening, 22nd of March, 1864, at the opening of Upton Chapel in Lambeth in London. And one of the reasons why I appreciate it is because I recall uh, preaching on the same text um, and uh, I'd really valued uh, some of Spurgeon's particular insights into this text as I wrestled with it. The text itself is 2 Kings 13 and verse 19. You should have smitten five or six times. Then you would have smitten or struck Syria till you had consumed it whereas now you shall smite Syria only three times. So the scene is set between Elisha, the prophet of God, and Joash, the king of Israel. Elisha is near the end of his life, and the king is visiting him, and that in itself is something quite striking. The king, though, is not truly a man of God, and the prophet calls upon him to perform a particular act, Now, Spurgeon begins in his introduction, just as an aside almost, to call us to seek to live, that even ungodly men may miss us when we're gone. But he turns then to the the, the pith, the, the substance of this particular episode, because he tells us that the scene at the deathbed of Elisha, fragrant as it is with the tribute of respect paid to the prophet by an ungodly and unprincipled monarch, is memorable for the lessons there and then taught the king and not less suggestive is it of profitable instruction to us. I propose, therefore, he says, first of all, to consider the significant sign, then I want you to join with me in censuring the slack-handed king, after which we shall have no difficulty, I think, in unanimously justifying the righteous wrath of the prophet. So we need to look at the sign, then we need to condemn or criticise the slack-handed king, And then we need to justify the wrath of the prophet. So then, the significant sign. And Spurgeon emphasises its significance, its weight. Israel was engaged in warfare against Syria, and as a sign that God intended to give victory to his people, the king was bidden to take the bow and the arrows, and Elisha, as God's representative, puts his hand upon the king's hands, the window is opened, and the arrow is shot. And the prophet says that the arrow is the arrow of the Lord's deliverance of his people out of the hand of Syria. And this is a simple, symbolic act. God will save. Deliverance is of the Lord. 
but it must be accomplished by human instrumentality. And Spurgeon points out, as he often does, and it's interesting about this period, how often he expresses his concern about the Irish revival, which uh, had as one of its boasts that it was a work without human instrumentation. And Spurgeon is concerned at this because he often emphasises that God in his sovereignty chooses to work by instruments. And so it is God who works, he says. The instrumentality is nothing without him. He takes care to elect means which, from their very feebleness, convince the most sceptical that the power cannot be in the creature, while at the same time he rarely effects any great thing for his people apart from human agency. Point me, he asks, to a single period in the history of the church where God has worked without instrumentality, and I will tell you that I suspect whether God has worked at all if I do not see the instruments that he has employed. So he's very insistent on this point. We grant you, he says, that God can work without means, and even when he uses means, he still takes the glory to himself, for it is all his own. Yet it has been the rule, and will be the rule, till the day of means shall come to an end, that just as God saved man by taking upon himself man's flesh, so everywhere in the world he calls men by speaking to them through men of their own flesh and blood. Now we must get a grip upon this. We are not to let the arrows lie still and say, God will do his own work, Elisha will shoot the arrows. That's idleness. Look at the churches which say God will do his own work. You will find that the more these people talk about God doing his own work, the more they sink into a fatal apathy. No Sunday school, no care for the conversion of souls, but bigotry, bitterness of spirit, carping and backbiting against all those who are willing to labour in the master's vineyard. And when they have entangled brothers whose conversion was affected under other ministry than their own, they talk as if they had been reconverted and did not know the truth till they heard the particular, excellent, superfine, hot-pressed gospel which they deliver. It's an ugly portrayal, and yet there are too many of our congregations that still have something of the same spirit. We're so adamant about the, uh, the sovereign power of God that we do nothing ourselves and rather just uh, hoover up other people. Now, says Spurgeon, if I had to compare two devils together, I do not know which is the worst of these evil spirits, the spirit that idly says, leave it to God, or the spirit which goes about God's work without depending on him. O Lord of hosts, he reminds us, it is not by might nor by power, but by your spirit. Nevertheless, the love of Christ constrains us to spend and be spent in his cause. So Spurgeon's point about the significance of the sign is that it is a, a, a means of communicating both our dependence upon God and our responsibility to serve. God will save, but men will serve. God will save, but the, the deliverance that the Lord brings must be accomplished by human instrumentality. And that's really the principle now that he's going to drive home as he looks at the slack-handed king and considers the, the grief and the wrath of the prophet Elisha. So, Elisha gives Joash the bow and the arrows, and he tells him to shoot upon the ground. It was left to Joash. God foreknew and had predestinated how many victories he should win, but still at the same time it is marvellous how our free actions tally exactly with God's predestination. And he's using Joash now as an example of believers 
uh, typically believers, uh, who, um, who really don't understand what God has put in their hands and how they should treat it. And so he says, many believers have but little faith and seem quite content to have that little. Joash could have shot six times, but he only shot three times, and so he doesn't have the triumph that he might have had. And that, says Spurgeon, is a picture of those who basically cannot grasp the promise of God and believingly expect to have it fulfilled. Why, he says, I don't know, dear friends, that there is any necessity for us to be always doubting and fearing and trembling. Some think there is, but this is because they have not a high idea of the standing of the child of God and of the position which God would have him attain unto. And so they shoot three arrows and conclude, well, I'm saved and that's enough. I'm just going to get to heaven. And Spurgeon says there's much more that they could have if they exercised their faith. And then there are another class of people who says, he says, who are just the same with regard to their knowledge. They don't understand the deep things of God. They're content to know that which saves the soul from ruin, but they don't plumb any of the depths. How much they miss who neglect to study God's word. And what blessings do they cast away from themselves who are willing to be ignorant of the sublimer truths of revelation? Again, they're stopping short of what they might have done and might have been if they had grasped the promise of God. You will see perhaps these same people, he says, or others like them, who are very content about their daily walk and conversation. They've gone far enough, but they don't see any real need to go any further. So there's very little family prayer. There's not much interest taken in the conversion of the children. There's an angry temper, perhaps, which is somewhat curbed, but still the brother thinks it's impossible to curb it anymore, and so he tolerates himself in the occasional indulgence of it. There is much which is not inconsistent, perhaps, in the eye of the world, but which is most certainly not consistent in the mind of the Spirit of God. Spurgeon is saying here that, essentially, this is contentment with small attainments in godliness. Now, I am as far as anybody, he says, from believing that a man ever will be truly, finally, perfect in this life, but I never will be satisfied until I am, and if I cannot be perfect, I will seek by God's grace to get as near to it as possible. In other words, in this matter of sanctification... Why rest satisfied with shooting three arrows when you could shoot six? And then there are Christians content with very low enjoyments. God speaks to us. God has as made himself known to us. Shame on us that we are content to be such dwarfs when we might grow into giants, that we are here frittering away our time when we might immortalize ourselves and glorify our Lord. So he says there's so much that God holds out to you, so much that God is ready to grant you, and yet what do you do with it? You're not making the most of your opportunities. Yes, he says, I am afraid there is in this Christian land very, very much of this stopping short of what we might do. We do not press on and reach to that which is before, but saying, I am saved, we are content with that, and sit down before we reach the goal or have apprehended that for which we were apprehended by Christ Jesus. So Spurgeon is here mourning over the slack-handed king, and he's using him as a as an image, as a a, a parallel to believers who might have accomplished much more, who might have done much more than they, they currently have done or expect to do 
or wish to do because they've settled for a little when they might have had God's plenty. And he asks, now, why should this be the case? Why should the king not shoot more? And he offers some suggestions. There's a, there's a few brief ones. He says maybe the king felt rather tender towards the Syrians. Maybe he called it compassion. And he says, I actually think that some professing Christians don't want to be too hard with their sins. They have a sort of hidden tenderness toward their own corruptions. Oh, dear friends, how very angry we get when someone tells us a little too plainly about our faults and how angry we are with anything which seeks to cut the throat of our favourite sin. If you, if you want to see anger, then simply deal with some Christians when a preacher has put his finger on a particular sin. And the anger, the, the, the bile, the antagonism that can come back under those circumstances is sometimes quite terrifying to consider. Tenderness to sin, then, says Spurgeon, will always check us or hold us back in any great growth in grace. We shall not use God's bow as much as we should if we once begin to pamper self-indulgence, to cultivate our own ease and make provision for the flesh. Again, he says, perhaps the king didn't shoot more because he thought it was hardly his business to be employed, employed as a bowman. Why should I stay here forever, he says, shooting arrows? I didn't object when the prophet's hand was upon me, but to stand here and keep smiting the ground is hardly the occupation for a king. So he doesn't actually develop this, but the sense here seems to be that I'm too important, I'm too significant myself to be about this kind of business. And then he says the thought that perhaps he should have three victories and that would be enough. In the same way, many a believer seems to say, can I always be keeping watch over my corruptions? Am I to be so precise and to live so near to God? What, am I to be so much in prayer? Am I to be such a Bible student and to be so much occupied? No, if I can overcome some of my sins and be a respectable church member and do a little in the Sunday school and get to heaven, that is enough. We rest easy. We are satisfied with far too little, says Spurgeon. And then perhaps the king may have begun to doubt whether the victories would really come. Spurgeon says the king essentially doubted the divine power and the divine promise because of his own weakness. And many a Christian does that. He points out that we who are in the ministry might do vastly more for God than we do if, remembering our own weakness, we did not let that overshadow God's strength. So we measure our expectations not by what God can do through us, but what we think we can do, sometimes even without God. And then it is very likely, he says, that the king despised the prophet's plans. Why, he seemed to say, this was absurd shooting arrows into the ground in this way. We too then miss a blessing because we don't like God's plans. It seems perhaps foolish to us. We've got some new scheme of our own, not preaching the gospel, that's old-fashioned. We're going to try something else better than going out into the highways and the hedges and compelling men to come in. But no, says Spurgeon, if right is right, pursue it. If God commands, do it and leave the consequences to him. If God tells you to shoot at the ground, you shoot at the ground. There may be no Assyrian standing there at the time, but every time you shoot, that arrow finds the heart of your enemy and shall lay him low. And now Spurgeon begins to, to, to come close to the members of this new congregation in Lambeth. 
I would, dear friends, that I could so speak tonight as to give the members of this church a very high and noble ambition to do much and to get much for God. Sounds very William Carey-like, doesn't it? Do much and get much for God. To get much grace, to have much holiness, to do much work. In fine, I wish I could bring them into such a state of heart as the prophet wished to see in Joash, that they would take the arrows and shoot them off. And that brings him to his third point, which is the righteous wrath, the indignation of the prophet. And he says it's entirely justifiable. Now, we don't like to see an old man or a dying man angry. But the prophet here did well to be angry, even though at the hour of death. Oh, how Elisha loved the people and how he wept to think that their king was standing in their light and was robbing them of precious privileges. And here's the transfer again. Now, when I look, dear friends, upon many church members and see how utterly idle and careless they are about Christ's cause and how many professing Christians seem to be as dead as the seats they sit upon and to have no more grace than worldlings, I think if my soul were warmed with something like a holy passion against them, I might say with more truth than Jonah, I do well to be angry. What is it then that provokes Elisha to this righteous indignation? The first is the suffering of Israel from the slack-handedness of the king. It's a, it's a really evocative phrase, that, isn't it? Slack-handed. You, you, if you think about a hand hanging down, you know what it means. And Christians, you suffer yourselves, says Spurgeon. You miss a thousand comforts because you will not work, because you will not serve, because you will not labor in faith, because your prayers lack fervor and unction then you're not going to accomplish what, what you might have done. And the church treasury is robbed by you. It's a, it's a striking image that he uses. Church membership is a sort of joint stock company. We, each one of us, take out of that stock and put into it. There's a prayer treasury. We all want to be prayed for. There's a taking out of it. We all must put prayers into the treasury and those members who do not pray and are there such, and who do not yearn over souls, and are there not such, those members who have no zeal for God, and are there such, rob the treasury of God. And I do not know why I might not compare them to Ananias and Sapphira, for they keep back a part of the price. So when you've got slack-handed believers, they are drawing off the church, they are taking away from the church, they are not putting anything into the service of Christ. He also says the prophet was rightly grieved because the triumph might have been so easily achieved. All Joash needed to do was to keep shooting arrows into the ground. But because he was slack in this, Syria continued to come. To come. The devil rejoices when he sees slumbering Christians, says Spurgeon. The world laughs in its sleeve at professing Christians nowadays because it says, in the old Puritan times when we saw a Christian, we were afraid of him. When a man joined the church in those days, he was a man who meant what he said. How much more might Spurgeon say today? Where are the people who speak and live like we actually mean what we say? It is these people, says Spurgeon, who may be Christians, but who are only half Christians. These people who are not altogether cold, but still not hot people whom I would not shuffle away with a dross, but who nevertheless are so adulterated with base metal that you can scarcely call them pure gold. 
It is these people who make the daughter of Philistia to rejoice and the sons of the adversary to triumph. The slack-handed, lukewarm, half-hearted Christian. You can't say that they're not a believer, but the way they go about believing and consequently behaving actually it, it does such harm to the honour of Christ and it does such harm to the zeal of others of God's servants. And Elisha then is grieved because Jehovah's name was dishonoured. They were laughing at Jehovah in the streets of Syria. They said that their gods were greater than he. What a shame it is that you and I should ever put Christ to more shame than he endured for our sakes. Spurgeon says, and and again you could write this large over our own society, it seems to me that everybody is enthusiastic except Christians and that men can get their blood hot on any subject except religion, that in these days the ice has been given to the church of God and the fire has been cast upon the world. It is always a distress to faithful preachers when they see people who can give themselves, serve, strive, put in the effort and the labour for almost anything but the service of Jesus Christ. People can manage whatever they want to manage. They can, they can produce prodigious efforts and accomplish great things for something that often doesn't matter that much. They can make so much effort. They can, they can move great distances. They can stir up their energies. They can, they can travel here or there. They can stay awake. They can uh, go without food. But what for the service of Jesus Christ? Hot on any subject except true religion. What a shame, what a shame this is. Prophet, You did well to be angry, says the preacher. I would that some burning spirits would come among us and speak even bitterly to us if they could but make us feel that life is real, life is earnest, and that the cause of Christ demands that spirit, soul and body should be at the highest tension, at the very sternest stretch, spending and being spent even unto blood, resisting sin and contending for the mastery of Christ. So Spurgeon comes to the end. I took this text, he says, because it seemed to me, I don't know how it seems to you, as if it were a lesson to your minister and to you tonight. We do want to impress upon you, he says, while God will help you and stand by you, ever to remember that the church must be active. Every single individual must take his portion in this sacred fight, in this grand crusade against sin. And that notion, that conviction, that reality is as much needed today as it ever was. The church needs every one of her children to be up and doing. I pray Brother Evans, that's the minister at Lambeth, never to stay his hand from the shooting of the arrows. If God shall bless him in one effort, let him go on to another. If he sees seven souls converted, let him mourn that it is not eight. If he sees the place filled, let him even then not rest satisfied, but let his cry still be for something yet beyond. And as the eagle rests not but flies upward ever facing the sun, such may his course be, onward and upward and true to the line, until the master shall take him into his glory and the rest which remains for the people of God. It's this wonderful portrayal of what I might call aspirational Christianity. 
not aspiring to great social status, not aspiring to reputation in the world, not aspiring to wealth, not aspiring to carnal glory, but aspiring to the best that we can do for God and for the greatest that we can see of God in his church for his glory. And says Spurgeon, what about the people? Do you not sit, do not you sit still? Don't just lie about. Don't just sit on your hands. Do not think that your standard of a prayer meeting is to be a low one. Do not begin to say, if we have 20 or 30 at a prayer meeting, that will do. God send us 20 or 30 at our prayer meetings for some of us. Why, many of our churches are below even that standard. Do not be content even with 50. Go on shooting. Here's that aspiration. Here's that yearning. Here's that pressing on. Do not ask God for a little, but open your mouth wide and God will fill it. Take care that you open it as wide as ever you can. Ask your Lord for great things. And when you ask, do not ask as though you thought you were very venturesome. No, but ask because God is sure to give. You're not gambling when you speak to God in this way. You're not uh, shooting at a venture. You're, you're, You're trading on the promises that God has given you. Do not be content, I pray, he says, at Upton Chapel with being a nice, respectable, strong church in the denomination. Do not be content with that. I say it very sorrowfully, but we have known some churches which did run well. They've got a good place of worship, a a handsome building with little bits of coloured glass, and the people's faces on Sundays are all sorts of colours. I think he means the sun's shining through and everybody's so impressed. And when they've got to this pitch, they have said... Well, we are a very respectable people. We do not want the poor people. We don't want to go into the lanes and the highways and the hedges and fetch them in. Again, you see, what's happened? Three arrows is enough. Don't shoot any more. I hope, says Spurgeon, it may never be the case here, but may you ever be a faithful church. May you ever be a working church till the Lord himself shall come. May God grant that you may keep on shooting your arrows, that you may expect great things and do great things. And there's William Carey's echo once again. How often we see it. Churches that that are happy with the status quo, who achieve some level of of comfort and apparent self-reliance, and that'll do. And that's where we stop. And that's where we're satisfied. No, says Spurgeon, And no God helping me, say I. And all of us who are here present, says the preacher, let us consecrate ourselves anew unto God. Let us bethink ourselves tonight whether we have not been shooting too few arrows, whether we've not thought too much of the little we have been doing, whether we might not have done more, whether we must not do more, whether now for the future we will not believe God's promises more firmly, preach his word more boldly, tell it to others more frequently, give to God more liberally, pray to God more earnestly, consecrate and devote ourselves to the Lord more perfectly. This is true religion. This is what Christianity really is. I would, he says then, that the Christian would give himself up so completely to the mighty whirlwind of divine grace that it might carry him away and make him but as a particle of straw in its tremendous course. The Lord grant you power and grace thus to be given up to him and thus to serve him. Well, friends, I hope you, you can at least appreciate something of why I value that particular sermon. I still feel it very much 
in my own soul. I still feel the, uh, the rebuke of it. I still feel the pressure of it. I still feel the hope of it. And I hope that you will too. So do join us again next week. And in the week between now and then, let us be up and doing for Jesus Christ. And when God calls us to shoot arrows, let's shoot our six rather than our three. And Lord willing, next week we'll come on to another very significant sermon in Spurgeon's output. It's number 573. The title is Baptismal Regeneration. The sermons are 570 to 576 and the featured sermon 573, Baptismal Regeneration. Do join us then and we trust that God will bless you until that time. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Thank you for listening. I'm Jeremy Walker and From the Heart of Spurgeon is a podcast from Media Gratii. For more resources like this, including a biographical film of Spurgeon's life and labours, visit mediagratii.org.